This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Monica Perez. I am here with an old friend of the show and my crypto go-to, Daniel Johnson, who just, I think he didn't even start this yet, right? Is based New World, um, new a new, is it a blog that you're starting? I see you're on Substack and- Yeah, it's a blog. I'll be posting there once a week. It's a base new world, like the opposite of brave new world. Right, right, exactly. Base new world. And your Twitter handle, which I know you from before, is anarchy underscore dot underscore gov, but D-O-T underscore G-O-V. Uh, and you've been, you were, participated in some of the Zoom calls that we had on uh, the Propaganda Report, gave us a little 101 on crypto. And I've always found what you've had to say about this stuff very illuminating and very easy to understand. And I know that you've been on the kind of offshoot of Propaganda Report on um, uh, Union of the Unknowns. And they suggested that I have you on. And of course, I should have thought of it already. And what good timing, because I really want to get into the Silicon Valley bank stuff. And I know you've got opinions on that. So hello. Thank you. I think I'm just going to wind you up and let you go. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Excellent. I'm a longtime listener, and I I don't listen to many podcasts, but you're, you're being clear, too, that I catch regularly. Fantastic. So. That's so awesome. It did happen at a... This is an opportune time with uh, all the banking collapses and their links to cryptocurrency and such, so... Yes. Not a banking expert yes. or a crypto expert, but I've been around crypto for a long time, and I've read my Mises, so... Exactly. I, uh, I know. I, I know the feeling. And I did. I was a banker back in the day, but it's been a long time. And I know that my information was totally outdated. However, and even though I've been traveling and haven't really been following the Silicon Valley Bank thing day to day, blow by blow, I immediately thought like these guys are not they in March as late as March. Moody's rated them highly in February. They were ranked by Forbes as like the 20th best bank in the country. And they don't understand the basics of like hedging against interest rates. Seems seems like there's something fishy going on here. So, but what do you what do you what can you give us an overview of what happened with that bank? And and feel free to interject your opinions. Okay. Well, first, the first bank failure that happened was Silvergate last week, and uh, Silicon Valley Bank was the, uh, this week, which is a much larger one. Silvergate is one that, from what I understand, it. They worked with a lot of crypto projects. And I think crypto was their primary business. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I'm, I know that crypto, I kind of bailed them out. But uh, so their failure was kind of stemming from all the crypto failures and they had loans tied up with, uh, you know, about the Celsius and FTX and some of these people. Right. And it was, so theirs was... It was an FTX. They were... FTX was a big customer of theirs and that's like a not so yeah, done thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what happened with uh, Silvergate, and that was a you know that's a really big deal for the crypto industry. And then a few days later, I think this happened on Friday of last week, Thursday or Friday of last week, uh, 
Silvergate Bank, which is a huge bank in uh, Silicon, not Silvergate, Silicon Valley. All three of these start with an S. And signature. It's really confusing. The yeah. New York one, There's the Silvergate third one was signature. signature. And, yeah. Yes. Okay. But Silicon Valley Bank. Yes. They were the big one that happened on Friday. Yes. And they theirs was a little bit different. They are uh, involved with cryptocurrency, but it's not like the the biggest part of their business. The biggest part of their business is dealing with uh tech startups in Silicon Valley and almost all of them have you know interest uh, at least accounts with them so they're huge in Silicon Valley they're not really a bank me or you could sign up for it's for these tech startups with millions of dollars and such like that so on so a few weeks ago they posted uh, their earnings report their balance sheet I guess that they were basically two billion I think it was two billion or maybe four billion dollars in the hole for uh, bonds because they bought 10-year bonds at a 1% interest rate. They bought these back in 2019 and 2020 when the Fed outlook, they were the Fed was saying they would keep interest rates low going forward. And then they pivoted, obviously, after the inflation of COVID. So they bought these bonds that are locked up for a long time at a really low interest rate. So today, those bonds are worth significantly less because you could buy a bond today at a higher interest rate. So why would you buy their bond? The only way you could buy theirs is if they sell it to you for less than they bought it for, you know, 90 cents on the dollar or something like that, so you can make a profit. And uh, these made up a huge portion of their balance sheet. And so once they had this hole in their books, they started trying to raise capital, which spooked a lot of these tech startup investors that were all, apparently they were all on a Slack channel together and they all started talking with each other that, you know, they got this hole in their balance sheet. Can they honor our withdrawals? So they all kind of started taking their money out. And what's significant about this and different than any other bank run we've seen in the past is just the speed of it. It was, let me look, $40 billion in a few hours. I believe that the CEO, this is something I, I think is crazy. I think the CEO said that people are blaming the CEO for coming out and and announcing their liquidity crisis instead of just trying to get what was recorded at the time, reported at the time to be $2 billion, could easily have gotten $2 billion behind the scenes. And I think it's important to note that this guy was a Fed chair, was the was was the Fed, uh, on the San Francisco Fed board until like very recently. His name was Gregory Becker. So for him to do something that stupid is pretty hard to believe, both with respect to not hedging the interest, the the interest rate exposure on such a, you know, um, a bank that was con- considered to be fairly conservative and that he was a Fed chair, which makes would make him, I would consider way more conservative and perhaps confident, perhaps not. But here's something like I found completely ridiculous. Uh, this was Senator Kennedy. He's like a Florida senator, not like a Kennedy. He said if the management of Silicon Valley Bank had known the difference between a banking textbook and an L.L. Bean catalog, Silicon Valley Bank would have never bought securities that are so sensitive to interest rates without hedging that risk. Honestly, it's banking 101. And for me, if you're saying that these people are stupid, that's just an absolute flag. Like that guy is not stupid. And am I like some nutcase conspiracy theorist to think that there's another explanation, but then this guy is the worst qualified person to run a bank ever? (laughs) It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And I feel like there's something more to it, but on top of not hedging, he also sparks that, which was also similar to the FTX thing where a big, a big um, investor the guy whose name is CZ, like a fake diamond, 
tweeted, oh my gosh, I'm selling everything. This thing is tanking. It was like, no, no, no. You sell everything first and then you make fun of the people who didn't. You don't, you don't tank it before you sell. Yeah, yes, it's very similar to FTX in that regard. And yes, what CZ did, it was, I don't know, it's kind of a gangster move how he handled the whole thing. Not a good thing or anything. He's just... Well, but he lost money that way. I guess if you want to say that he assumed all the, that he became like the big shot after FTX because it was also a competitor, I guess. But he could have, he would have done that anyway. He should have sold his stuff first, let it tank, and then bought it up. He uh, did lose a lot of money, but he lost a lot of money on paper basically because he made, he got all that for free. He got billions of, not for free. He was an early investor in FTX and that's where he got all those FTX tokens that he started dumping. So he didn't pay, he only paid a few million dollars for something that turned into billions. But he could have sold and them for he, more if he hadn't tanked yeah, it. Yeah, he could have sold them for more. <laughs> but since he's tanked FTX, yes. But Binance has like 90% of the crypto volume now. Right. But I would they just say, really go out crazy. He would have had it anyway. He should have sold it oh, and yeah. said, I just sold it. And that would have freaked everybody out. See, it would have been the exact same, but he'd have an extra billion dollars. Like, I just feel like people aren't that stupid. And when you're saying, like, this guy is stupid, I'm like, well, maybe he has something else up his sleeve. And I feel that way about this guy. So you're saying, like, people were ginning up this run on the bank, and I'm saying it was sparked from this insider. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, Yeah, I agree with that completely. Because that was a really crazy... That's not how... Because he's not... Silicon Valley Bank isn't the only one in a, uh, having issue with these bonds right now. They uh, probably, they bought more than most people. They had a higher percentage of their uh, assets in them, but all the banks basically right now are dealing with the same thing, and a lot of them are selling their stock, and they are doing investment rounds to get more of it. But for some reason, he comes out and makes an announcement about it, and now he's put basically all of the regional banks in jeopardy because of it. Yes, and, and that I consider that to have like some potential implications for at least a fiduciary duty towards the people who are the customers and the owners of the bank. But I would also say, now I'd have to look at it, and I haven't looked at the finances or whatever, there, there are built-in like limits to your exposure if you match the duration of your assets with the duration of your liabilities. So if he had all like short-term, everything can be called in a, on a moment's notice, kind of deposits and all of it was all of the assets were 10-year treasuries like that would be a pretty serious mismatch like they're they're natural hedges because if you only had one-year treasuries well then you'd only be exposed to that one year of interest rate but if you have 10 years you have to make up for 10 years of interest payments being five percentage points higher and that means that your current bond price has to drop way 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 Whereas, you know what I'm saying? So like, it just, it feels like a lot of kind of the banking 101 comments is not wrong. It's just that it's, it's not believable that these guys are just idiots. I feel like they're, they're tanking this thing on purpose for a reason. Yeah. And especially if you look who's benefiting the most from this, it's the big banks that have already been bailed, that have a track record of being too big to fail Yeah, and all the money is pouring out of regional banks, even ones that have sit way safer practices like the ones in wyoming that the state charters there and stuff like that they have way safer practices but all the money's still flowing out of their coffers and into you know wells fargo jp morgan and stuff yes and i would say sorry i told you i would let you go but i just you know me well enough to know that's never gonna happen so <laughs> <laughs> so 
No, but I will say also like this whole idea of a lot of the press is suggesting that mid-size banks, which makes you kind of think Midwestern, middle class, middle America, it makes you think that this is a bank as well as I think Signature and um, Silvergate's, uh, you know, like the crypto thing, but Signature's big money. The, the SVB is big money. I, I don't even know if regular people can deposit an SVB. It, it, the reason there were uninsured accounts is because it's not like you and me with a bank account, which would be insured up to $250,000. There are, there are probably uninsured accounts, like because they are of a different nature. So these clients are really big guys. These bank, these uninsured accounts are not something that would affect like the, a middle class person isn't going to have probably more than $250,000 in one single, you know, cash account. And yet it's, they're trying to cast a shadow on those kind of banks, those regional banks. And I agree with you, it's to, or, or what's happening, and I think it would be intentional, is to get it into these big, highly controlled, very government-connected, big, big banks that are too big to fail, but also too big to be independent. And you know what I mean? It, it becomes part of that big cabal. Yeah, our banking system is already so centralized that, you know, the true, like, uh, community banks and credit unions and stuff like that almost don't even exist anymore but at least we still got these small regional banks that you know you can investigate yourself and find for safer practices and stuff but this kind of does seem like a direct attack on them agreed okay and, uh, so that's really devastating yeah so you were saying that these guys all got together and kind of chatted up a run on the bank whatever that means in this context i don't know yeah, and it was really significant because they withdrew $40 billion in one day in just a few hours, which is uh, one-fifth of their deposits, which is, you know, in previous bank, generally a bank run takes like weeks and weeks and weeks. And also, generally, when there's a bank run and FDIC has to step in like they did in the 80s and stuff like that, they uh, they give them weeks and weeks to try to raise capital and try to restructure and stuff like that. All this is happening to all of these overnight. Similar to what happened that really sparked the financial crisis in 08, I believe there was, this says that FDIC turned down an offer to purchase this right away. So there was an offer right away that some bank was just going to go in and shore it up. They won't tell us who, but they, they said no. And I feel like that's like they want this crisis to be like annoying and longer than necessary. Yeah, it does seem that way. And the it's just... Even more suspicious when you count what happened to Signature Bank, because the shareholders at Signature Bank were shocked that they came in and shut them down so quickly and that they took over so quickly because they had so far honored all the withdrawals and they were trying to raise money and stuff like that. And they, you know, referenced previous times FDIC stepped in where they gave them weeks and weeks to, uh, you know, raise capital and stuff like that, sometimes even months to raise capital and try to restructure. But they seem to be jumping in at the first sign of problems and maybe that has to do with the size of these runs like more are happening quickly but it's still different than it's been in the past this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. 
behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And by doing that, they got to bypass normal FDIC rules. And they said now that this is creating systemic risk, which is probably because they are creating a panic, they're now going to insure even uninsured accounts. And the uninsured accounts, this is a hat tip to Byron, another listener who pointed this out, that if you're if you have uninsured accounts, it's probably for a reason. It was probably a different kind of account that had higher interest or higher return, in which case you it's not like you're necessarily going to lose everything. I'm not sure that the bank was entirely insolvent. It was just illiquid because they the run was of an unexpected size. So if you if if you don't have an insured account, it doesn't mean that it goes to zero. It just means that you have to go through the bankruptcy process and the government doesn't step in. But it does. But that then you would lose everything only if you are so far down the list and there's an insolvency at play that you would actually not get paid out. But that's not a guaranteed thing. So they're doing some stuff to make it uh, it look funny. And I feel like there's no reason for them. It's not orderly. And I don't like that. It would have been orderly if they did it in an orderly fashion. It actually would have gone better. Yeah, they're just fixing it by bailing out all insurance, all you know, depositors. Which makes people stop caring about how it works. Because I remember there was a time when there was a $100,000 limit on FDIC insurance. Now it's $250,000. And I had that much money. And I was like, I remember my husband said, don't, we have to make sure that we have more than one account if we're going to keep that in cash. And we we made sure, you know, we paid attention to that because it would have been a big problem if it wasn't insured. It was like yeah, everything. But with these guys, it's not everything. And you would know you're making a decision. Yeah, there was a time when people would, you know, research their banks and look for, you know, a track record in them and such. But, you know, that's basically with the FDIC insurance, basically, that's all anybody looks for anymore. They see that stamp on the window and they, they trust the bank after that, even though in reality, you do how much research you do when you're buying a house or how much research you do when you're buying a car, this is this is all of your money and it is significantly more important and most people just go deposit and whatever's giving them the highest interest rate at that moment or something like that. Right. And so, okay, so they caused the run and it was bigger than ever and then the signature bank was weird because it they were honoring it and the government came in and said, stop, like put the pencil down, which also reminds me a little bit of FTX because that's what SBF said. He was like, well, the American stuff was totally working fine. Why'd they shut it down? Yeah, and it, the American branch was pretty heavily regulated, so there's a good chance it was all there, and that if they just separated that as an entity from the rest of the bankruptcy, all the American depositors might be able to be made whole a lot quicker. Right. Again, these are different decisions being made by different investors, getting different returns and expectations that all were subject to due diligence, and it, it's like insurance. Like you know, you want to make these things separate. You want people to understand the risk they're exposed to. You don't want to clump it all together because it uh, it it does a lot of things, but it also distorts how people look at this stuff. Like, you know, if something's too big to fail, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And it really gives a perverse incentive to every, the FDIC insurance in general gives a perverse incentive to the whole, I mean, that obviously Mises taught us. Yes. This, but it gives us, you know, a perverse incentive to the broader uh, markets. And 
this is a lot of people are saying that you know the shareholders are not being bought out they're not being paid they are probably going to lose their money but i heard jeff dice bring this up that yes the shareholders are being uh, bought out just not the shareholders of these three banks the shareholders of every single other bank are being bailed out because if they were not coming in and making all of their depositors whole on these bank runs then other bank runs would be happening immediately right now everybody would be rushing to get all of their money out but because the government came in and said no we're going to honor we're going to make sure every customer gets every dime of theirs that you know gave everybody a chance to take a breath so it's really the these three are kind of being the sacrificial lambs for the rest of the banks to be propped up even though a lot of them have a lot of the same problems right now there's the banking industry as a whole with these same uh long-term uh, treasury bonds are there's 620 billion dollars throughout the entire banking industry they're in the hole of unrealized losses to the same problem that they're having at uh, Silicon Valley Bank and JP Morgan, I believe it was, has something like 40. I mean, they're even bigger. They're a really big bank, but they have like 40 billion in unrealized losses for the same exact thing. So bailing out these specific banks is kind of bailing out the rest of the the sector as a whole. And they're saying this won't affect, you know, depositors or uh, taxpayers aren't going to pay for this. The banks are going to pay for this. But obviously <laughs> we know that the customer always pays for it, that those costs will be put down onto the, you know, individual bank uh, bank customers. And if it actually, in a lot of these cases, ultimately it's a, it, the taxpayer pays or the Fed pays or it gets, you know, they buy, I, I mean, at one point during the last collapse or whatever, 2008, the Fed was buying corporate bonds. So if yep. the Fed is buy if the Fed feels like it has to make a market for treasuries to get the interest rates back down against their own decision to raise interest rates, you know what I mean? That that's really the answer is just that they might have to end up monetizing it, which is inflationary. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that the inflation that we're all complaining about right now is is simply a function of the 2008 not allowing the actual assets that collapse to collapse by pushing so much money into that. This is this is what happened. They just needed to make those losses not mean anything in nominal value by by massively expanding the credit supply, which it took them 15 years to do. But that's why our our, our prices are going up. I think. Yeah, they spread out. They spread out those losses to, to the everyone who holds and uses the dollar. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, when they buy these bonds, that is creating. They create money to buy these bonds. And the bonds go on the Fed's balance sheet and the money goes out into existence and dilutes I mean, the previous money. People can really feel it now because normally productivity gains will compensate for that inflation. So if it costs less to make a pair of jeans than 10 bucks and, you know, it used to cost 10 and you would pay 20 for the jeans. Now it costs eight. You should be paying 16, but they've inflated so you're still paying 20 you don't notice it but they had to because there was a, a deflationary class they had to expand it to the point where that actual dollar was worth less because the losses were in dollars and uh and now you really see it because jeans are 25 dollars, not 20 i mean obviously jeans are more than that now but okay so do you have a a, a theory of why fdic took over the signature bank before it was do you, do you smell a rat like what's your working theory there well according to like some you know i've been reading mistis dot uh, org the last couple of days listening to jeff dice and stuff like that and they think the simple answer is just that this problem is so bad they're trying this you know there's so much dry brush in the field they're trying to stomp out the tiny flame the second it appears you know 
because this problem's just so bad and it's all gonna implode if they let it go on. Really? Like I said, these losses on yeah, like these losses on these securities. You know, they're you know, those guys aren't quite as conspiratorial. Right, right, as right. We That's are, true. You know, so. It's frustrating to me. Because they'll say them like, and if I really know the topic, I can usually counter it in like, you know, item by item. But it's just hard for me to accept a problem that we we're all aware of for so long. I mean, rates have been going up for a long time and and there's been a lot of signaling as to how long that will last. And yeah, okay, you can't be sure. But I think we all kind of knew that the Fed funds rate was going to go to 5%. I think that was kind of the writing on the wall. I think they said three and a half in the beginning. But this 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 kind of a problem should have gotten some press if it was really organic, in my opinion. Maybe it's it. Maybe, maybe I'm just noticing it now. Yeah, they should have known that the interest rate's got to go back up eventually. And it's certainly going to in the next 10 years. I mean, Peter Schiff's been shouting it from the rooftop forever, you know. But even after they announced that they were doing it, as they started to do it, you know, one year ago, I, I just don't, I wasn't awash in, inform- in, in news stories like Powell's got, Powell would have stopped. If they thought it was really systemic, you know, he would have just, he would have just let inflation happen. Like inflation is not as important as bank runs, you know, and, you know, I just, and I feel like the bankers know they could see this coming and either they don't care because it's a moral hazard of being completely insured or or yeah. what but it just seems to me like it didn't come out of nowhere and they're acting like it did well i'm sure to the majority of bankers and smaller regional banks it is just you know a problem of them not understanding and them having perverse incentives that you know the government involvement creates but i don't think that some of these higher ups like in that silicon valley bank and stuff like that are you know that dumb to make mistakes this badly you know especially in announcing it last week and making it public so everybody you know the run continued on the bank yeah so and it seems like an attack on you know well if you listen to signature bank barney frank was saying that you know this is a he's calling it an attack on crypto he's a shareholder on the board at uh signature bank and uh the, he's saying this is he thinks they're do, acting so quickly and stuff like this to attack crypto because it also had a significant effect on crypto because it uh depegged the stable coin circle stable coin usdc okay what does that all that what does that mean okay so it's a stable okay it's so a stable there's a company called circle they're just a privatized company and they released a a stable coin that's supposed to hold the value to the dollar one to one supposed to always be worth a dollar but it's on a blockchain so you can trade with it on uh exchanges and on DeFi decentralized finance protocols and stuff like that and they basically the way they work is you give them dollars and they they work just like a bank you give them dollars they use those dollars to buy treasuries and bonds or whatever they spread them out a lot of them hold crypto too or in circle is one of these companies that did this they come out came out of the stable coin called usdc and they since circle launched the stable coin they've been really open with their books about where they keep their money and uh, how much of it they have and stuff like that with like the specific instruments they're invested in and everything. And they held $3 billion at Silicon Valley Bank, which is $3 billion out of $40 billion. So when the bank run started happening on Silicon Valley Bank, you know, this was happening in Silicon Valley. It's got lots of crypto guys up there and stuff like that. Everybody knew the relationship that Circle had to Silicon Valley Bank. 
and people started dumping their uh, USDC stablecoins. US dollar coin is what it stands for. USDC stablecoin, and it depegged from the dollar. Because theoretically, you can... Certain customers always... Me and you can't go and buy USDC from Circle directly. Me and you could go on an exchange and buy it. In order to buy from them directly, you got to be like an institution and fill out an application and stuff like this. But Circle promises those do that people who redeem them with them will always get $1 in return for their stablecoin. But on the secondary markets where me and you have access to it, it's just traded like any any other uh, asset or commodity. It can go up as whatever people want to pay for it. And it lost its peg for a half a day there, went all the way down to 85 cents. And if people were pouring money out of it and into Tether, which is the largest stablecoin, USDT. Hold on. How does it maintain its peg? How does it maintain its peg? Through hedging with other currencies, with just having a dollar for every coin it issues? Do you know? Is that too technical a question? Well, it maintains its peg because the company Circle is always willing to redeem them for $1. But, but how, how can it have a bottom it has bottomless resources. Who owns it? Does, it? It's, no, it's the same way that uh, the same way a bank does. They invest. They can't. If, if there is a bank run, they cannot honor them all. And that's in the terms of service when you use it and stuff like that. So if there, it's exactly like a bank. You deposit money. They buy bonds and investments with it and give you the stable coin. Except with these, they don't have to give you any interest on it because that's not part of the deal. But the problem is me and you cannot go and buy that. You have to be an institution or there's like a big application process to go and do that. Me and you only have access to the secondary market. And it holds its peg on those secondary markets just because exchanges and stuff like that are buying up. You know, they're getting their fee trading fees and that and stuff like that. And they're trading against their customers and they're getting, you know, lots of those U uh, USDCs that they are trading in for $1 with Circle. But that is the uh, entity. Uh, the exchanges themselves, not me and you. Okay. Does that make sense? It, so the, it does. the circle promises them. Yeah. My problem is that even like this is like an age old problem. It's impossible even for a country to maintain a peg to a dollar to the dollar or to any other country. Like the the amount of exposure in an open market, but you're saying so the amount of exposure in an open market is is more than any any even a country could bear. But you're saying it's not an open market. However, so so did Circle close the exchange when it went down to 85? Like completely eliminated from being traded? Uh no, it no, it did not stop it from being traded, but it did stop honoring withdrawals for just a short period of time right. they were okay. back up pretty quickly okay. but Got that mean you like i said me and you can't go withdraw from them only you know people who have accounts with them that filled out the application have significant money can go withdraw from them me and you can only get it on the exchanges or DeFi platforms okay so it really I mean, I gotta get my like mind around it from because, a bank like to me the only yeah i mean just seems like it would be hard to maintain a peg like that uh it just you really have to control the volume I would think. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's lots of shenanigans that go on behind the scenes, especially with Tether. Circle, USDC is the smaller of the two big uh, um, stable coins. Tether is the, you know, behemoth of the industry. Okay. And there is loads and loads of shenanigans that go on behind that they do print, you know, just print Tethers and stuff like that and manipulate it like that. But it's mostly keeps its peg based on faith based on faith of the people buying it. Interesting. Let me just answer Stella's question and maybe you can 
to also augment that, Stella says, who is behind Circle? And I'm just reading off Wikipedia. Circle is a peer-to-peer payments technology company that manages the popular stablecoin USDC, a cryptocurrency, the value of which is pegged to the U.S. dollar. It was founded by Jeremy Allaire and Sean Neville in October 2013. Circle is headquartered in Boston, Massachusetts, and USDC is currently valued at $44 billion. I don't know how current that is. But okay, so it was founded 10 years ago by Jeremy Allaire and Sean Neville, neither of whom I know. But do you do you know what that, that is? Investment money from Jim Brayer. Do you are you familiar with Jim Brayer? Oh, why do I know? He was what? He was uh, what's what's the name of the Excel? Excel, yeah, the Excel Group. He was on the board and in charge of the board of the Excel Group, and they were the major investor in Facebook. That uh, they held the largest stake in Facebook behind Jim uh, Klein. No, Jim Brayer. Jim Brayer, B R E Y E R. And I trust uh, that's what the whole, oh, I got okay. a lot on Jim. I got yeah. a lot on Jim Brady. Got, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so that's important here that he is, important to what I'm going to get in at the end at least, that Jim Brayer is one of the major early investors into Circle, which has a USDC stable coin. So they- uh, Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, we're going to get to that. Jim Brayer is super interesting. But, yeah, he might, he might so be kind of- kind of deep state let's get to him let's definitely get back to him so keep going okay um so this de-pegged so the usdc lost its peg and people started freaking out money poured out of it on DeFi platforms and stuff like that and exchanges and into tether tether actually had a little spike up it was worth like a dollar and two cents there for a little while because everybody was going to tether now you question why does usdc they're more open with their books they seem to have done things more honestly than tether so why did USDC have a run on it, but Tether does have didn't have a run on it? The thing that the reason is the run on USDC started because everybody knew they banked with Silicon Valley Bank, and nobody knows who the hell Tether banks with, and that's the reason. So they're not sensitive to something like this triggering because they are not open with their books and they've never been audited, and nobody knows where. Well, we know where some of their money's kept. It's kept in a bank in the Bahamas called Deltek. <laughs> they were a bank that worked with FTX for a long time too. And they're a really interesting group. They were started its own. The the CEO of Dell Tech is the guy who invented and or who started Inspector Gadget. Did the cartoon Inspector Gadget <laughs> and a bunch of other cartoons. Yeah, he's a weird dude. But now he runs a bank that deals with all these. Oh, and he but he lobbied the Bahamas to uh, change laws to accept cryptocurrency there, which is why FTX was there in the first place was because of Dell Tech Bank. But they yeah they work with Tether, and that's the only bank that we know that tether works with that's why it's kind of crazy that people saw more confidence in tether because there was a run on the bank usdc used it's like we don't know if there's a run on the bank that tether uses because we don't know what bank they use they're not open with it and they have an you could do a whole show just on tether if you're interested in the shenanigans of tether's history look at the tether papers (laughs) and it's just crazy they were they used to claim to have one dollar in the bank for every dollar in stable coins they put out. They've been uh, admitted in 2019 that wasn't true and that they were invested in, uh, you know, debt, but basically the same things that banks are investing, except a lot of theirs was commercial paper, which is uncollateralized debt. So uh, let me see where I was at. But it's here very short notes. term, so it wouldn't have the interest rate risk probably. Yeah. So, okay, so stable coins, and the, it's really important, stable coins depegging is a huge deal in crypto. And even though this wasn't the largest stable coin that's uh, Tether, this is still a big deal. 
because stable coins are the majority of crypto volume. 76% of the volume of cryptocurrency, and I looked it up today as today's numbers, 76% of crypto volume in the last 24 hours is USDT, is Tether. Uh, 9% of it is uh, USDC. So that's like 85 or almost 90% of the daily volume is in these stable coins. And that's on every exchange everywhere. They dominate the industry. So wait, stable coins are behind every crypto transaction? Not every, just right. most of them. Okay. There are some platforms you can buy with US dollars, which I would suggest doing. But all of those platforms you have to KYC with. You have to provide your information and stuff like that. Like Coinbase, Kraken, right. and a few of these yes. that are regulated exchanges. You can deposit dollars on there and uh, buy uh, crypto with it directly. Offshore exchanges like Binance, uh, Bitfinex, KuCoin, these like that, that are unregulated, they can't accept dollar deposits. So they have, that's why these stable coins were invented. That's why Tether was invented. Tether was created by the exchange Bitfinex. They lied about being connected for a long time, but now they openly admit it. Uh, Bitfinex has had a long, they got one of the biggest crypto hacks back in 2016 was from Bitfinex. And a lot of people, like, a lot of people seem to think that it wasn't really a hack. It was more of an inside job. Anyways, they've been in the news a whole lot. And the Tether in general and Bitfinex both, let me find my notes on this real quick have very, uh, they've been, you know, convicted of, not convicted, but they admitted to fraud multiple times over, and they've lied about uh, where they had their money multiple times, and for months on end, they didn't even have a bank. They were saying do Tether was backed one-to-one -one for months when they did not even have a bank, so I don't know where this money was. That was until they got uh, in with the bank down in the Bahamas. But Tether was started by... Do you know who Brock Pierce is? No, but I have a supercomputer on my desk, so I'm going to look it up. Yeah, he's an interesting character. He was like a child actor. He was in uh, The Mighty Ducks. He was the coach's, like the young coach when they do the flashbacks of when the coach was young. He played that character in it. And he was like one of the early investors in Bitcoin. He was one of the only guys in there that actually had significant money to invest. Anyways, it was launched by him. And I'm sorry, I'm having trouble finding my notes on this. That's there's right. so much to it, I can't remember it all. So yeah, it was started by Brock Pierce and the owner, or the not the owner, but the CEO of Bitfinex, Giancarlo Davasini. I can't, I'm probably not pronouncing his name right. I've only ever read it. I've never heard it. He's a former plastic surgeon from Italy. And uh, no, I don't know how he got involved into crypto and banking and stuff like this, but he's a plastic surgeon. They went to open a... In 2014, they established Tether? Nine years yeah. ago? Yeah, they've been around forever, which is really interesting that, that they've been able to exist this entire time when uh, similar projects like... Uh, Liberty, did you ever hear of Liberty Reserve? Do you remember that? Yeah. It was in 2013. It was basically a stable coin. It was a platform you go deposit your money on and send it to people with just an email address. Mm -hmm. And they got shut down immediately. And the guys running it got thrown in jail or in jail in France, like immediately. And they were yeah, working this guy off didn't. in a. Yeah, yeah. But yet these guys have been going for nine years. They've had run ins, they've had settlements with uh, the New York attorneys. That's when they had to admit that they weren't actually backed one-to-one -one, and they start admitted that they bought bonds and securities and this other stuff 
They've never proved it. Who knows how much money they actually have. And they print and destroy Tether like on a daily basis. Some days they'll print billions of dollars in Tether. And uh, they say it's because someone sent them a billion dollars. So that's why they're <laughs> printing it. But you don't see the other side of the transaction. And it makes it incredibly easy to manipulate. It seems fishy, and, I have to say. When when oh some things gosh, survive and others don't. And then people blow themselves up like the SBV people. Like it's yeah. SVB. Okay, actually, let me explain. Uh, st stable coins are quite a bit different from like Bitcoin or something like that. They are uh, like Tether is a token that is minted on the Ethereum blockchain. Like anybody can go and make a token. You could go make a token on Ethereum blockchain. You can make it have as many of them as you want. You can make it do whatever you want and then launch it. And you could sell it on these DeFi apps, these DEXs, decentralized exchanges. And you could literally do whatever you want with them, program them to, you know, inflate like crazy, program them to deflate, program them to have a tax on every transaction, stuff like that. There's even one case with this token, this scam token called Squid Games, they're copying the TV show, where they created a token you could buy, but you could not sell. <laughs> <laughs> it was a <laughs> really, really good scam. Yeah, the Squid Game, I think Copyzilla did a special on squid games yeah it was really funny you couldn't even trade no for it? you couldn't oh my use it. gosh yeah you couldn't sell it it was really oh, no. funny or i guess not fun anyone funny, in jail a lot of people lost that? money into it so yeah so ted uh no not yet that just happened like a year ago and most of the you, you know they take forever to investigate financial crimes and there's so many of these crypto scams like who knows if a lot of them will ever get locked up but uh so these stable coins are just these tokens on the blockchain and while like a blockchain like Bitcoin is decentralized and has a fixed number of coins, like you can't go and create new coins on there. Whoever makes a token on Ethereum's blockchain or whatever blockchain it's on, they could do whatever with them. They have control over a centralized control over the wallet. So Tether and USDC and any other stable coin, to be honest, can freeze your money in your wallet. They can delete the money out of your wallet. They can uh, obviously track it. It's all on the Ethereum blockchain, so anybody could track where it's going as long as they could link it to a name. But they have the ultimate controller. They do it for the government all the time, especially Circle. The you know government subpoenas them for someone who stole some crypto in a hack, and uh, they, you know Circle freezes it and sends it back to their coffers, and you know gives uh, cash to the FBI or whoever's investigating them. So it kind of has all these tenants that a CBD a CBDC might have. But it's already out there and it's already being used some sometimes up to a hundred billion dollars in transactions a day with tether and it's already being used by people all over the world so yeah I any just of that to point out, yeah the stuff that the one that's chosen it was the one that was chosen yeah and i'd say okay so now we're going to get i'm going to get into uh jim brer because this is a good yes. for because no, i already you're... showed that he was yeah i can oh, go ahead and his it's brer because it looks like briar's ice cream is that how it's said? Well, it's spelled like Briar's ice cream, I, but I believe yeah, you. Yeah, it is. I think it's said Brer. Yeah, I, I believe think you. it's pronounced Brer. Yeah. But I do do most of my research through reading. So yeah, I, I know really the feeling. Yes, hear, yes, yes. Hear it very often. So, uh, I, no, I, yeah, I, I'm Jim not interesting that. I'm just so people know. But I see like all the red flags, although I have these red flags too. He went to Stanford and Harvard, but did he go to community college? So, but he, right. but here's one that he that I do not have, and I just did a show with Mystic Mark from my family, think some crazy podcast about like the geomancy of New Haven, Connecticut, and this guy's from New Haven. So I'm gonna. Oh yeah, he is. Yeah, isn't he? he's I, from I New listened Haven. to that episode too. So, uh, Jim Brer, he got 
his main his first claim to fame was being the head of uh, Excel, the Excel Group. I always forget the name. Yeah, Excel Group. Yep, which Axel, was the yeah. ma- first major investor in Facebook, and they uh, owned eleven percent of it at the time, which was their, their biggest shareholder besides Mark Zuckerberg. But and then he led a bunch of funding rounds into a bunch of companies like Etsy and Spotify and stuff like that. So he's made money through that. But the big thing that he did was he uh, became part of a group called IDG Capital, which IDG Capital was the very first company to uh, invest, the very first like global co- uh, global firm to invest in China back in the 90s. And in, let me find my notes on it really? real quick so I can say when he took over. He took over it. Yeah, the Excel Group partners bought it in uh, 2004, I believe it was. Yeah, they started a joint venture, uh, joint venture between Excel partners and China-based IDG Capital Partners uh, in 2005. And he got put on the board of IDG Capital Partners. And uh, they're a huge investment in China and India and stuff like that. They're a huge name over there. You might know them by their subsidiary companies like Tencent or uh, Baidu. If you're familiar with either of your, their huge <laughs> tech companies over there. So anyways, Tencent is the company that owns WeChat. Are you familiar with WeChat? Mm-hmm. It is the Chinese everything app. It is mm-hmm. their, you know, email, it's their social media, It's and most importantly, it's their payment system. Uh, apparently when you're in China, nobody even wants to take, I think they do have cash there still, but nobody wants the cash. They just want you to pay over WeChat. That's how you have to pay it when you're there. Tencent is the company that owns it. And, uh, Brayer is the major player in IDG Capital that owns Tencent. Well, anyways, Tencent also owns a company called Digifinex. Digifinex is the company that owns Tether and Bitfinex. So Tether, the other stablecoin that is the largest stablecoin in the world, is uh, he's a major player on that side too. So for USDC and for uh, USDT, which together make up almost 90% of the daily crypto volume, he's the one that started all of that. And he is also on the board of uh, Tencent that owns WeChat, which has you know a stranglehold over the payment systems in China. So between the three of those, he has a huge, you know, influence on payments all over the world. And that's the... I mean, his resume is insane. Like, he is on oh, the man. board of Blackstone. He had something to do with the Harvard Experiment Fund, which I never heard of, which is, I guess, how they pick winners, kind of like Stanford Research Institute. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It's He's got, uh, yeah, KKR he was at... Um, the big one he was a part of, the really suspicious one he was a part of, he was uh, led the Excel buyout of BBN Tech, uh, BBN Technologies, which yeah. is, full name is Raytheon BBN Tech. <laughs> but it a, it's a different company from Raytheon. It really confused me for a while. Really? There. Yeah, because when you search BBN Tech, the Wikipedia pops up Raytheon Tech. But then if you Google Raytheon, it well, it must have Raytheon, been you know, part that... of Raytheon at some point, and Silicon Valley is a sister of the defense industry. I haven't dug into it that far, but that I really want to know why they're called Raytheon. Both of them are called Raytheon, but they have connections to the defense industry even without yeah. that. They uh because they let Excel, uh, Excel and one other firm bought BBN Tech. Can you guess what the other firm was that bought BBN Tech? InQtel. 
Oh my gosh, so, the CIA BC incubator. Well, that's that. But Raytheon did own BBN. All right, I was confused by that. So, yeah, yeah, it said it's an American research firm. It was the parent organization has included Raytheon Company. I don't know why it's in it's in Cambridge, but yeah. Oh wait, I mean maybe it's not right. Yeah, it says Raytheon was a major U.S. defense contractor and industrial corporation with manufacturing and weapons and military. It was previously involved in corporate special missions in 2007. I guess it got then it became Raytheon Technologies, but it's in Waltham, Waltham, Massachusetts. Wow, I was I was there not so long ago. Well, yes. Yeah, so the yeah. tech and defense, in my opinion, are where I think it's pretty well established. You know, mother daughter industries. And these yeah. researchers, there's at Stanford, and I guess I didn't even know Raytheon was in Massachusetts. I thought I thought all of the defense industry was in Southern California, and all the tech was in Northern California, basically in its origins. But it looks like this was the like you know it says Harvard all over it. But I'm guessing MIT was around there somewhere, and uh, and that it's all yeah, that's probably why something to do with MIT. Yeah, because it's in Cambridge. Cambridge, MIT's in Cambridge. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, he is a, his firm that he was in charge of went with Incutel bought BBN Tech, and I they might still own it. I don't have that in my notes. So I'm just I'm curious what 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 was BBN Tech or whatever it's called uh, up to? It's like um, why would Incutel like, care about it? They did like communication stuff. They were they bought them Incutel and. Excel or X, I don't know how to pronounce whatever. Excel, yeah. they uh, bought it from Verizon, is who owned it before. Yeah. Then Verizon owned it for like four years. Okay. But they're like a research. It started as a joint venture between professors at MIT. Okay. Yeah. So that's why it was in Massachusetts. So yeah, he has, I think he might be on the board of BBNs still. But yeah, that's a direct link. You know, the company he owns with the CIA. This is the guy that started, you know, the stable coins we use every day. And uh interesting. Oh, what was the other? Oh yeah, and he's also married to uh his wife's name is Angela Cho, and that's Mitch McConnell's wife's sister. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. Like you cannot make this stuff up. Seriously. Yeah, and if you Google her name, Harvard Synthetic has biology. A- They're into synthetic biology. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. a bunch of their other, yeah. And uh, AI, too. And some Quantum of those other investments are heavily. Google. Advanced speech yeah, recognition. Yeah, he's just into everything that's scary, basically. He's What's cognitive in. radio spectrum? <laughs> it's a DARPA program. Cognitive. Ouch. <laughs> I don't know. This Sounds like fun. a I just want to read right Wikipedia. It's a, I want us to read like <laughs> all this deep history. Oh, it's just right there, and it just cracks me up right. that it's all there. Like, oh, you'd it. love the work. I, oh, I guess it was a good time to shout out Money Today Show, because I got a lot of this information from him. He's got a very, I don't even know his real his first yeah, name, that's but fine. his how channel do, is called Money, yeah. Money Today Show, and he has a small channel, and he's he's dug into all of this stuff. Like, Craig, this is just like a tiny percentage of his work. He digs into individual crypto projects and finds crazy connections. So between, should like, I have Ethereum him on? Bound. Should I invite yeah, him on the show? Yeah, you definitely should. Okay. I'll talk. Yeah, tell him. I'll talk to him and sure. see if he'll come on. He's the only person I see talking about. And a lot of the stuff I just wouldn't know about if it wasn't him. And uh, but this is yeah, he's this is talking about uh, 
doing stuff with Stanford Research Institute, which is Siri, S-R-I. Siri is named for that. Uh, UCLA, it talks about ARPANET interface message processors. This is all that BBN thing. Um, but I have to say those connections, like I look at as soon as you open, you find the right guy to click on. And then it's just like, oh, it just cascades down on you, all the deep state stuff. I have to say, and I was traveling, I was at my mom's. and I try not to do the news when I'm at my mom's house because I just want to hang out with her because she's really old. Um, so I wasn't really paying attention to the Silicon Valley Bank thing. But as soon as it happened and somebody texted me up, oh, you better, you know, keep your radar on, which I did not. The first thing I thought is I absolutely have to Google SVB and Sequoia Capital because Sequoia Capital was is the one that was behind FTX. The reason people thought it was legit is because those guys said they did due diligence. I'm like, well, I actually think that they might get tax write-offs that are worth more than the investment they put into FTX. Like, I'm not even sure they're going to lose money. But I, the first thing I saw when I looked up on Wikipedia, Silicon Valley Bank was that a major client or new, you know, one of the first investors, whatever, the first actual proper name that was mentioned of their VC clients was Sequoia Capital. I don't know if that means anything, but I just, I look for these connections and when I find them, like, then I feel like I'm on the hunt. And this guy, like, there, there's like an endless number of threads to pull on this guy. For sure. Jim. Oh, man, it goes like crazy. He got me looking at Anita Jones. Have you ever heard of that girl? No, that but I do need a uh, Jones. Well, every she once was the while. one that led. She was the one that led the Incutel board with Jim Brer from the Excel board in the buyout of BBN Tech. So they worked together buying out BBN Tech because she was on the board of Incutel. And she was the former from 93 to 97. She was a director of defense research and engineering, which is the manager of DARPA, basically. She was in charge of managing DARPA from 93 to 97. And then yes. she soon got together with Jim Brer to buy BB, BB Intech. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. And um, who are the Cho's? I, I know that Mitch McConnell's wife is from is super rich or from a super rich family. Is that possible? I mean, does that sound familiar? Yeah, when I, go when I Google her name, Harvard has a page just about her and apparently there's six six of the sisters of the Cho's and they all are all really successful. Six sisters? Angela, what, what country are they from? I think they're Chinese. Do you get to have yeah. six daughters in China? <laughs> or wait, maybe- How old are they? Maybe they're Chinese Americans. They might be American, yeah. Uh, they're, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s. It was one of the first things that came up when I searched her name, Angela. So now we're descending into so, yeah, they had a history page. homo stuff. Right. Do you ever listen to history homo? I know you don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but- Oh yeah, yeah. They, I have listened to they're them funny. Before. I really like them. But you'll go on their show and they'll and they'll just like start reading Wikipedia. It's and it's fun. It's fun for me. <laughs> I mean, it's fun for me because you just like go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. But I feel like we're we're ripping off their format of just looking stuff up. Right. Um. Okay. So. Well, I she's the CEO I, of uh, Foremost Group, which is a very large Chinese shipping company, which. From what I can tell, they have some involvement with a cryptocurrency project called, uh, oh crap, what was it called? It was basically a, a tracking blockchain for tracking shipments and stuff like that and doing inventory. What was the name? VeChain, that's it, VeChain. They're basically for, you know, uh, tracking and 
doing doing a easier way of tracking your shipments and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Supply chain, supply yes. chain stuff, you know? Yeah, so basically, which is really, when I think of that, I always think of the, have you ever, have you ever, where did I read about this? They have this technology where basically they have this liquid that they can spray on anything. They spray it on food or anything like that, but a barcode reader, if you, you could spray the, spray something with this liquid and take a barcode reader and uh, scan it with it and it'll give you information about whatever, you know, same as normal barcode reader, but it's like a liquid that you could spray on food. So basically you could spray it on a bunch of wheat and then when it gets to where it's going in the, you know, South America or wherever it's going, they can scan it with a barcode reader and see the supply chain of where it came from and where it's going and when it was picked and all that kind of stuff, which is, is that- really creepy. Some. Yes, that's a they spray that on. I I I remember Ice Age Farmer talking about that. I want to talk to Ian yes, Davis that, about that. It was that. Ice Age Farmer. Yeah, yes, it was him. That's who it was. But I didn't understand that. Okay, I have to. Yeah, I understand anyway. that you've got a lot to talk about. I have to figure this out about about um, Mitch McConnell's wife. Is her name Elaine? Chow? No, her she's oh. Angela. And oh, Mitch McConnell's wife. Uh, I don't remember. What's, how do you spell the last name? C H A O. C H A O. Okay. Okay, so um, I only say that, yeah, he says it's three. Okay, they're from Taiwan. Oh, okay. Yeah, he is father of six daughters. From China. Among them is Elaine Chow, uh, only because six daughters in China, like, um, there has to be right. something going right. on I there. That. <laughs> Anybody my age or whatever. Okay, so. Okay, she was born in 1953, so that's not my age. Never mind. Okay, could have worked. But anyway, I think she was born in Taiwan in any case. Yeah, Taipei. Uh, okay, so keep going. Where are we? We were down We were um, down the rabbit hole with Jim Brayer, and uh, I just I just fell into another rabbit hole. So gotta, you got to pull me back yeah. out. <laughs> okay, no, I do the same. I'm having a good time. I think we're doing fine. Let's take a break and end part one here. Daniel has a great style, knows a lot, and explains it well, and it just gets better in part two, where he tells us the true story of Bitcoin and what he thinks of PirateCoin and Monero. We also discuss the numerous and nuanced agenda items served by the Silicon Valley bank failure, as well as the others that have followed suit, not least of which Credit Suisse, which I think might be like finding a body later even though it was killed earlier (laughs) i don't know could be something there uh there is definitely much more to this story so check out part two which is already posted ad free in deep dives premium on itunes as well as at rockman.com slash deep dives and will soon be available at deep dives with monica perez on your favorite podcasting platform